David Moyer is one of the uh, relatively new consultants at Leeds who first instigated the Lix course and started doing more and more simulation stuff. And I think some of the other consultants got on board and then they started running a course. I shoehorned my way into that and it very much started very rudimentary. And then every day we ran, we picked up faults and tried to improve on those. And that was back in January, February of... 2018. So when you say rudimentary, what what we're talking? What was your setup? Um, we didn't really have one. It was like, oh, we've got no pumps. Um, oh, we haven't got any observation charts. Oh, we haven't got this. We haven't got that. So what did you have a mannequin? Uh, we had a mannequin and uh, a positive attitude. Uh, <laughs> I think in those first few courses, we were asking the candidates to use their imagination an awful lot, which I don't think helps in buying into the simulation. But I think even now, in the courses we're running nearly two years down the line, we're constantly picking up a little bit of, that could be a bit better, this could be a bit better. What can we do to make that a little bit more real? And I think starting off, there was no budget for this, was there? It was all, um, even though we did have a high fidelity mannequin, it was all borrowed from the limit suite, which is our education suite. So it's not like we had a state-of-the-art sim suite um, and faculty with funding available. Um, So it's very much started on a shoestring. And when it started, it was in the limit suite, was it? Which is a, a separate simulation. Yeah. Yeah, it's the education department. So it's mainly used for the undergraduates. Um, and it's not a simulation suite itself. It's just a, an environment where there are sim um, mannequins and there's a couple of rooms where we can run a sim course. When it started, how many people were involved? Was it just a really small group of people? I think when it started, there was David, Claire and James. And I think there was one band six ICU sister from... Jimmy's that was kind of interested and that was it and what were they going to do with that simulation I think it was it was aimed at being a, a multidisciplinary you know human factors how do we manage these critical incidents that very rarely happen on an ICU and that's why I was quite keen in cracking on you know because certainly from a nursing perspective experiences on a downward trend within some would argue within healthcare in itself, but certainly on the ICU and having been on ICU since early 2000s, I've seen that. You know, so the guys on the units can become quite senior without an awful lot of experience and not seeing these once in a blue moon incidences. So, you know, that's why I got behind it because they need to have experience of what it's like when it all goes horribly wrong. Tell me about how it's developed over the years. Well, I mean, I think one of the biggest improvements we saw, and not to make his head grow too much, was Manoj coming into position and actually having somebody dedicated and having it part of their role as opposed to people just doing it because they've got an interest and are willing. But I think I saw a massive jump in the organisation of it when we had somebody that had some dedicated... I mean, I don't know how much dedicated time you had, but somebody that was identified as somebody to move it forward. Tell us about your simulation fellowship and what time you had. And... Yeah, so um, as the clinical fellows, you get two study days a month. Um, so that kind of amounts to 20 hours a month mm-hmm. um, to kind of work on simulation stuff, which was very helpful. Um, and I think when I started the LICS course, I mean, prior to that, I didn't have much simulation experience whatsoever, really. Um, it was something that I was interested in. Um, and so as a student, I found really useful as a sort of learning experience. So when I started the LICS course, I mean, the first, I just observed the first LICS course and I did... You know, it was quite nerve-wracking because 
there's lots of senior consultants and registrars around. But I think it was just all like um, going into the detail of the organisational things. One thing that really helped, I, I don't know, I found this um, really helped for the faculty was making a more in-depth simulation template um, and a scenario template. So we had sort of six or seven scenarios when I started, but what I did was just expand that scenario template um, so that faculty that perhaps weren't um, aware of the scenario itself um, could get a quick grasp of it in a short space of time and run it without sort of knowing all the in-depths of the scenario itself. 20 hours a month, you must still must have had to do a fair bit in your own time. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think I did. Um, probably had to do about twice as much as that. And um, But I think, you know, all the faculty, I, I was lucky enough to have sort of some time off. So, you know, all the rest of, our, uh, all the rest of the faculty are taking time out of their own time. So. Yeah. Who's involved in the faculty now? And is, do you have a kind of minimum group that you would want to have in order for it to run? I mean, I think that's one of the things we found was that, you know, I think simulation and simulation days are very labor intensive. I don't think you can run a simulation effectively without a high proportion of faculty to candidates. I think we had a couple of a couple of days where there were maybe three of us and it didn't go smoothly. I think we've said a minimum of five, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, I think definitely a minimum of five is needed. And I suppose that's Probably one of the biggest obstacles to simulation is that it's so labour and resource intensive. Mm. I think the other stumbling block to simulation is senior people as well. You know, certainly speaking to some of the more experienced, both nursing and medical staff, I think the more experience you get, the less inclined you are to engage with simulation. Sim, to me, is one of the most powerful tools in the educational arsenal, but I think it's almost one of the most dangerous I think if not done right, you can seriously mess somebody up. And I mean, with our LICS course, we've we've got an increasing drive to try and get through the new band fives through the course, um, relatively junior people who I think are very fragile. So it's really important yeah. to manage that simulation and debriefing environment. I mean, that's something that's really not irritated me, but I tried on numerous occasions. I, you know, I think it's the senior band sixes and the band sevens. That needs, but it's the same as you were saying about consultants. You know, the more senior you get, the less likely you are to engage in something like this. Because as you say, it can make you look like a numpty. But I think it's about dispelling that. If you were a new band five nurse and you saw your band seven do something not perfectly, but reflect on it and be open and talk about it, is that not really powerful in a way to see that? I think that is a really powerful way, but then you've got to have that openness of those senior people needs to be kind of a cultural shift of how people view simulation people see it as a test of them ultimately don't they rather than just a free learning environment where, where there's no no ramifications i don't know whether it's a culture within the nhs or just a culture in society everybody thinks you're tested all the time and i think it's just exposure isn't it so i mean we run our licks course on a two-monthly basis but apart from that within icu at least there's not much simulation at all going on and I think that's, you know, we're developing in-situ simulations. So I think if that's happening on a weekly or fortnightly basis, people experience simulation more. And I think that will start to change the culture, hopefully. So when they come on the LICS course, they've got a whole day off, have they? They've got no clinical commitments. They're not going to be pulled onto ICU. Court courses have been cancelled because of staffing issues, but no. That's exactly, you know, one of the big barriers to in-situ simulation. It's a benefit and a disadvantage I suppose is that you know you've got that 
concept that you can train staff that are actually working on that day within situ simulation, um, which mitigates organising off duty and paying overtime. But the downside to that is that, you know, if the unit's busy, you won't be able to run the scenarios and you might need to stop the scenarios midway through. What sort of buy-in have you got from management? I still think it's a bit hit and miss. You know, certainly having attended a simulation faculty development study day, you know, there was a big push there on how can you sell it? You know, how can you sell it to managers? And I think we have touched on it when we tried to develop things. You know, one of the big things that was the suggestion was that if there's a underlying themes of things that are not quite right in your own clinical environment, if you can write those into scenarios so that then the, the bean counters and the managers can demonstrate that, well, actually we're addressing this recurring issue through simulation. And then all of a sudden, sim becomes more attractive because then those people that are responsible for answering if there is a error or a recurring theme in incidents, then they can go to their senior people and say, well, actually, you know, we're, we're addressing this by we're including it in the scenarios. But I don't, think we're, I don't think we're quite there. We've kind of touched on it. But I think going to that minute detail requires more than one junior clinical fellow as a sim fellow who's got a handful of hours a month and, you know, other people that's just working on their goodwill. I think that takes a dedicated simulation team within a hospital. I mean, I definitely, yeah, I definitely agree with you, John, in that I don't think we have, you know, perfect sort of acceptance of simulation within the higher-up people, but it's definitely those kind of things that attract them like saying that we can address things like serious untoward incidences through simulation and definitely when we were applying for the eric funding uh, which was for us to get equipment for in situ simulation those are the kind of things that we said in the bid that we would address you know recent serious untoward incidences like a noradrenaline line being disconnected and resulting in an arrest or things like that um and those kind of Those kind of things, I think, definitely um, attract the higher-up people because they can kind of say, you know, we've set up simulation and we've addressed these SUIs recently. And I think the other thing as well, which we did when you expanded the scenarios, was identify learning points to meet syllabus. You know, for the nursing staff, if you've got your Steps 1 and your Steps 2 book, if you've got a syllabus that you can go, well, during this scenario, you are going to fulfil this part of your syllabus. You mentioned funding, so I think you've secured some funding for in-situ simulation, is that right? Um, yeah, so as I said, when we started, uh, well, when I started um, as a simulation fellow, we didn't really have any funding. We were using the um, limit suite, um, sim suites for our LIX course, which is a very high fidelity simulation mannequin. But I think they said that they wanted to do in-situ simulation for several years. And it was James Beck that highlighted the ERIC fund. So uh, ERIC is the Education Research and Innovation Committee. Um, and they have two rounds of bids for funding a year in Health Education England. And essentially, it's quite a long bidding process, but we bid for that. And the upper limit for organisations is £50,000. Um, so we got a couple of quotes for two simulation mannequins that are high fidelity to be able to run in-situ simulation both at LGI and St James's. Um, and we were thankfully successful with that bid. So now we're at that process where we've got the equipment, we're just trying to set up faculty and figure out how to actually run in-situ simulation. 
So is that sort of the ballpark amount of money that you need to really do it properly, do you think? I think we need more, yeah. Really? Wow. So, I mean, yeah, that was £45,000. I don't think you necessarily need a higher fidelity mannequin, although the Simman that we use at the Limit Suite is a Simman 3G, which is around 70 grand just for one. But I think you probably do need more funding for things like trolleys and beds and things like that. Um, we're often having to sort of pinch, yeah, use trolleys and things like that. So it's very much a starting amount of funding, I think, to be able to run it properly on both sides of the city. And what, so what are you going to use that money for, a mannequin? Yeah, so it's already used, so it's just two sets of mannequins that we've got. And we, we, we had some money left over, which we bought an echo simulator with. So Phil was telling me that you've spent time like fudging arterial lines. Oh yeah, Blue Peter. Yeah. Yeah. So these these crazily expensive mannequins, what do you get for all that money? And what other stuff do you need to fudge after that to make it that next layer of fidelity? I think the the mannequins do all the the numbers. You know, so you can have changing observations on a monitor that you can manipulate you can have the mannequin who you can listen to breath sounds it'll change breath sounds and people can talk through the mannequin but it was the stuff that we've fudged i mean i'm I'm sure there'll be places that do them but the stuff we've fudged is to make it icu specific having a central line that you attach to the patient having an arterial line where you can take samples from you know, things like that, having an NG tube in them so they look like an ICU patient. So that's where the Blue Peter skills have come in. So what have you done? What sort of things have you done? Oh, I've spent many an hour on a night shift going through storerooms trying to figure out how to create an arterial line that you can sample from and a central line that you can infuse stuff from. Because we didn't have any of that when we first started. You know, when we first started, it was like, okay, well, pretend you're putting up some fluid we didn't even have a pump you know and then we had pumps and we had fluid well just pretend you program it because we can't we haven't actually got the facility for you to run fluid through the mannequin so then we've gone to having a central line where you can attach fluid and bolus it you've just got to remember to empty the catheter bag that it's attached to but you know it's it's little things like that you know where you're you're not having to get the candidates to pretend to do something you're making them do it. So rather than having a nurse randomly pretend they're pressing buttons on an infusion pump, they're having to program it. You know, and things. the other things we did is we got loads of old drug bottles and just put labels on them and filled them up with water. So, you know, you've got a scenario where someone's needs some magnesium, you know, rather than them saying, oh, well, I'd give some magnesium out of this point. You know, now it's a case of do it go to the trolley where we've got all the drugs, find the magnesium, draw it up, put it in a bag of fluid, run it through an infusion set, hang it up, attach it to the patient and start it. What scenarios have you found then that work well and are consistent winners? And have you ever tried any that you think, ah, that was that was a bit difficult to do, may not do it again? I think you've got to be careful with scenarios because I think certainly some of the scenarios we use are very well-known scenarios you know some of them have almost directly come out of ALS you know and you can sometimes see those candidates are a little bit more clued up so I think there is a danger on having only a certain number of bullets in your gun and the the, the classic one is the uh, anaphylaxis you know if you do an anaphylaxis and you've got oh yeah this patient's just been given tazacin and they've got a penicillin allergy then that person's just waiting for anaphylaxis to happen and it kind of kind of sort of like uh, ruins the scenario 
and ruins the benefit of simulation. So as we've said previously, the scenario is almost irrelevant. It's how they react to a, a situation. And I think the important thing is, is to put people in a situation where they are uncomfortable. I think that's when the beauty of sim comes out, when you're putting people in an uncomfortable situation in a controlled environment. That's where they learn. I mean, I personally have learned so much just from being part of the faculty. You talked about the course you went on for faculty mm. at the Montague Centre. Do you think that everyone who's running a sim course should yeah. be? Without a doubt. So it's run by people that have done simulation for years and they opened my eyes to the potential benefits of sim in all its guises, but also the potential risks. And I think sometimes people do go at things without thinking it through. And I think sitting down on a day and having somebody that's been there, done that, bought the t-shirt makes you think actually, you know, yeah, we need to go about this in a little bit more of a logical and steady fashion. I think simulation is limitless, but what any one person can do or what any one group of people can do is limited by the situation that you're in. Um, and I think that's something that people have to consider before they start thinking about, oh, let's do this, let's do that. But I think simulation in essence is limitless. Thank you.